my name is Kevin Fryert. On Raising Rare, we are bringing you the story of a young father whose son has an ultra-rare disorder known as Setagatian-type spondyl metaphysial dysplasia, or SSMD. Each episode, we will find out what is going on in the life of Sanath and his son, Raghav. We will talk about Raghav's growth and development, ongoing and upcoming research, and the challenges and adventures that raising a child with a nearly unknown condition brings. Come join us to hear the story unfold. Last time we finished by discussing your first experience at Global Genes and how we met at the, on the phone afterward. I remember being astonished at how well organized you had become so quickly. Later, I learned you have a remarkable partner working with you. And let's dig into that a bit. Uh, today, we have your wife, Ramya, with us. Could you introduce her? Ramya, why don't you introduce yourself? I'm Ramya, uh, Sanat's wife and Raghav's mom. That I've recently started introducing myself as Raghav's mom, even though it's been just about a year and a half since he came along. We had a fundraising segment, uh, event last week, and everyone came up to me and called me as Raghav's mom. So probably that's how I should start introducing myself. Yeah, yeah. Raghav, Raghav is our family's brand now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, every parent, that's what happens. <laughs> you, just, you just have a little edge here because we're getting Raghav's story out there, and you guys are doing it in many ways. So people know who Raghav is. You become Raghav's mom and dad. So can you tell us a little bit about your background, Ramya? I uh, have an engineering background, uh, and then I went to Duke and did engineering management, uh, which is all about marketing and supply chain and things like that. Even though I have a background in all that, I never got to actually work with engineering or management. I took up uh, the creative side of me, uh, which is design. So I am a UX designer right now, uh, working for a tech company here in Seattle. Sure. Uh, I work for a tech company called Smartsheet uh, in downtown Bellevue. Just so people know, some of your the design talent was showcased in the logo that, w- that we have for Raising Rare. Can you tell us the story behind that logo and, and how you came up with that? Because the people I've shown it to have really liked it. They've teared up. They've responded. When I heard the name Rising Rare, it meant a lot to me. Rising Rare conveys exactly the journey that we are on. It was, it was very close to my heart and I wanted to do a logo for it. That's how I uh, started doing it. And for a designer, anything with two R's or whatever is, is, is a good playground to uh, do a logo. So that was exciting to me as well. So the thought process behind the logo was I wanted to show that there's three of us involved in this journey, right? That's us parents and Raghav. Uh, I wanted the logo to reflect that. And that's exactly how the logo came about. And, uh, you will also see a DNA and Raghav's figure there in the logo. So I think it conveys uh, the journey we are on and both of us trying to make Raghav stronger. So Ramya, he said that you handle kind of like the foundation side and all of that, and he's chasing the science. So you got your foundation up and running fairly quickly. How did, how did you go about doing that? So that uh, was a big story. So we were debating if we should go about starting a foundation of our own. 
what should that be and and a lot of uh, you know back and forth discussion there uh, but finally we decided to go with uh, a non-profit organization that was already existing the name of the organization is care and share uh, we had already worked with them for a fundraising event that we did uh, earlier so we decided to go with them primarily for two reasons first thing is they were already established and they had a setup that was going on so it let us get started very quickly and the second thing is the people who were running the nonprofit really believed in our cause and they understood the sense of urgency around you know uh, what we were dealing with so it made all the sense for us to uh, go with them and that's how we got started quickly having said that you know sanath and i uh, we keep talking about you know partnering with another nonprofit who is who are completely into you know the rarity space or starting our own sometime down the line but for now i think with care and share we are getting the right amount of support that we want for the research activities or the fundraising efforts that we are doing yeah and it's run by one of our friends here locally in seattle so it it makes it all the more easier for us to just you know go and sit in their house and in in squares and paperwork out um it's it, it also has a good alignment in interest um there there they have a um, they've been running for 20 years so it makes it very easy for us to work with them wow so but they do more than just rare disease is what i took from what you said they don't do any rare disease at all they do they primarily support like sort of any um philanthropic cause um they raise funds for it and then you know uh they distribute it to people in need like for example flood or tornado or earthquake relief and stuff like that um so this is this is a departure from what they typically do they also do uh, some kind of education support for education. kids who needs to get education so they have some activities involving kids but not rare disease per se i think the idea of what karen chair is doing and 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 sort of helping organizations helping parents get together so they can create an organization without being burdened with all the things that it takes to get your own nonprofit up and running and get it certified and and all of that i think it's a fantastic move on their part uh, maybe maybe they'll generate some business uh, from our our talking about it so once you made that decision and you kind of said okay we're going to go here we're going to be under this umbrella organization you created a website curegpx4.org where else did you turn your attention to then what did you do next so website was the first thing we actually did um before we even ex- explained the journey to anybody um so the original website was called gpx4.org and then uh, all the other radicis communities have cure in the word uh, in their name so we added cure to it 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 sounds really funny and even to this day we keep talking about it you cannot cure gpx4 is a gene name and we say cure gpx4 as if you're curing the gene which is <laughs> absurd um but nobody has complained to us yet so i'll just stick with that one and after we built the website we figured we need a facebook landing page we created a facebook page we created i i changed my twitter feed to start focusing you know exclusively on talking about rare diseases um i i used to focus a lot about my my profession and i said you know i have some people built in here i i have some traction uh let me talk about rare diseases in general um and our our focus has been not to get too deep into advocacy but do as much so we can attract you know other parents that have the same condition if they were to search on google so our, our focus has been to you know write things um in a manner that they they surface on google so when you when you search for gpx4 
uh, we haven't done a, a phenomenal job at that yet. We have a long, long way to go. Um, but but our focus has been that. I think with uh, the Facebook page, that was the goal as well. One of the ra- one of the other uh, GPX4 families found us through Facebook, uh, right? Uh, I think just a week after we had started the page, because they just went there, searched for GPX4, and our things surfaced. I was just joking that you know Facebook is really connecting the world, uh, right? Someone across the world found us in less than a week after we posted there, and the Facebook page came along after the fundraiser that we did on Facebook. A lot of people started following us. You know, it was important to start a page where we could post updates so people know how their funds are being used and just to follow our journey and be our supporters. And as Sanat said, we haven't thought through uh, the Facebook page a lot. We probably should do that and have a plan to continuously keep posting things. We are yet to start doing it. And, and actually, it was not just one family. Recently, uh, a doctor from, from India found us our Facebook page, I don't know, and then reached out to us saying they have a family with uh, rare disease, uh, with GPX for kids. So it's 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 certainly like Facebook has been a game changer. The internet in general uh, is definitely connecting people a lot. So whatever whatever we can do to plug ourselves into the internet ecosystem, um, to to basically get, get the word out on GPX four uh, and and this disease. I think that will be a lot of benefit. That's that's sort of the advocacy that we want to do to get more more parents in um, if they're diagnosed with this condition. You know, as we talked about creating this, that was one of the key goals was to give those parents who just found out someplace to go and and accelerate that that connection process. So they'll know your story. They'll hear who you connected to. They'll connect to them, and and it will it should truly accelerate the, the progress in building this community. The fact that you guys are like finding it hard to keep up with the different social media platforms, it's just one of those reasons why you need more support. You, you, need, you need people to help you keep up with the momentum you're building. And, and hopefully these connections will get there. Check out the talents of the people that are joining you. You know, yes, they've got a, a child in a similar situation, but they also have professions and skills and talents that you can just tap into. Conditions that have a lot of uh, patient population generally have pa- patients and patient advocates join forces together and create a bigger organization where you know one of the one of the one of the patient families would be the president, another one would do social media, another one would do finance. Uh, so it, it becomes a village by itself. Um, in an organization just just run by patient families and patients there. So if you were to talk about what your organization is, your your virtual nonprofit, what are the mission and goals of it? So let me put it this way. As much as we'd like to help uh, the, the, the world in general, we have one focus and, and the focus goes this way. If we can find a treatment for one person, that is a success story that we want to share compared to a failed attempt treating 100 people. What that means is we, we focus on Raghav as a um, quote-unquote case study, if you will, but we want to find a treatment. And whatever treatment we find for Raghav is going to be applicable to all other GPX4 kids, no doubt about it. But we are not actively at the moment because the the number of patients is small we are not actively looking to get into a a clinical trial phase for example or or just organize patients so that some pharma would 
would find it attractive. No, like we are trying to de-risk the science. We are trying to de-risk um, um, anything possible to find a treatment. And at that point, if, even if we don't need to de-risk, if the, if the treatment is just, if it's a drug that's already there in a pharmacy next door, uh, that's good enough for us. So our, our primary focus is finding treatments. And as we go along in this journey, I think our focus might evolve depending on how many patients we find, how close are we to finding treatments, who's involved in the process, is, is, a, is a pharma already involved, for example. And if they are involved, then we might need to, you know, drum up more patients and get a cohort ready and do do all those, all those other things there. In, in, in our minds, the only focus of this nonprofit is to find a treatment for this for this condition. Period. So we will only do activities that are absolutely necessary for that, um, and nothing else. So it's very short-sighted in that sense, myopic, but focused. It's focused. I don't think I don't think I would call it myopic. It's the it's the kind of drive and motivation that you have to have in a situation. You're you're not going to find very quickly the large population of people who have have this condition where you would even look at how do we do this so why would you even enter that that paradigm what you're looking for is what do i do for my son so this is a parent's heart what do i do for my son and and how do we treat that and just focus on that I think that other people will learn from you. Other people will have their own their own children. They'll focus on that, and you'll learn from them. It's the way you have to get started when you're this remarkably rare. In fact, we should we should ask how many how many kids do you know of now? And the numbers are slightly uh, still not clear, but uh, we know ten theoretically. We personally have spoken to four. Four. Uh, there are six more kids that we haven't gotten the contacts yet, but we keep getting the information that they exist uh, from a reliable source. So we are yet to reach reach them. That's remarkably rare. That we talk about ultra rare. This is this is what nano rare. I mean, it's it's a, yeah yeah it's it's n of one, and that's what you guys are focused on. One patient in front of you. Sometimes it feels odd to be focused on only one patient when there are, you know, nine others already there. But honestly, I, I think when you think about, you know, how pharma approaches diseases or, or you know, even, even rare diseases like, like Friedrich's ataxia, for example, or uh, even smaller diseases like, um, like MSP7 and, and like other things right, that have... 50 patients in their in their cohort and there are there's a pharma that works on this and there's there are drugs for it even even then it takes a lot of focus to find a treatment and when you thought when you start thinking about you know how am i going to find a treatment for all the 50 kids um it becomes a complicated problem even even on a small rare disease cohort the variance between each kid is phenomenal and you might need different sort of endpoints for the clinical trial. You might need different biomarkers to measure them. It becomes a, a difficult race to, 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 to problem to tackle. Um, but on the other hand, the model that I really like is, is how like um, cystic fibrosis has a medication for now. There are three different medications. Each one of them ta target different sets of mutations in the cystic fibrosis like gene. Um, and uh, they then then released a trifecta, which is like 
uh, three three drugs combined together that can do uh, almost 99 point or 96 percent or whatever uh, of the mutations right and, and and that's a good approach where you divide and conquer and focus on what you can solve right away and so you chip out, chip chip away at the problem uh, slowly rather than trying to take it as a whole um, so I, even though our focus is on is on one person, I think the drugs that we will find will be applicable to all the other nine kids or even more kids that we find in the future. What really matters is that we find a treatment. If you don't find a treatment, if there are a thousand kids, it doesn't really matter. So Rami mentioned that there was an event just this past week. It's clear to me that one of the challenges you guys face is fundraising to fund the research that you need to do. So... What are your financial goals? So when we started this journey, uh, we were unsure of what our goal is. And to be you know, very honest, we still don't know an exact figure that it could take, right? Just based on other rare disease parents out there and the things that we read up online on you know, gene therapy and other things available out there, the number that we have right now is $3 million. So that's the goal that we are going after. But we don't know if it's gonna if we're gonna find a treatment just with one million dollars, or if it's gonna take more than three. So we have no clue what that number is. Uh, but we're starting off with a three million dollar goal and slowly, you know, making our way towards it. It's a huge number. I'm not great with math. I, I don't know how many zeros that involve, though I do now. As you know, it's it's a, it's a hard number for me to imagine, and it it sometimes is you know, funny when I hear that an organization just gave away $100 million for something, you know, and then there's just this person who donated $5 million for something that's, that's not as important as curing a kid's life. And things like that throw me off. I start to wonder what this number really means and what value it carries. Uh, So I think we are approaching it in the way that we understand, you know, it's money that's going to help cure Raghav, it's going to help find a treatment for him. And I think that $3 million is, is a good figure. I can tell you that that's, that will get you to the next stage of, of research. It won't get you much farther than that, but you got to do the first stage first. And $3 million is attractive to the people who will have to do the work. That's something where you could put a, a good lab together and pay some people over time to to get work done. Um, and that's really where the money goes to is paying for, for people to do science. $3 million is a very laudable goal. How close are you guys? We are, <laughs> we are far, far away. You're too far away. Yeah. But I, I, I think, you know, I was talking to another rare disease parent um, who was sort of in this journey similar to ours. And, and he, was, he was echoing the same sentiments. You know, sometimes it's not about just getting the money and depositing it in someone's bank. It's about doing the right work. So even if you have the money in your bank right now, even if, if I have $3 million in the bank right now, I don't know how to spend it. We could do a whole bunch of things and just like burn to the 3 million in six months, or we could be very, very, very strategic and, and try to spend just a hundred thousand and get the value out of it. So right now we have enough money to be able to do the next set of research we wanted. Um, and so I think we have a good runway. Um, so we will keep, we'll keep raising money so we can continue working on, on more of these things later. Uh, I, I think later down in the pipeline is when it gets very, very expensive when we go to toxicology and stuff like that, which is, which is like, you know, 500, 600 grand for just one shot of uh, work. So 
I don't know. We'll, we'll get there. And I also know that you have a scientific board that you put together. So we're talking about organizing here today, and that's a huge organizational move to to find the right experts and and pull them together. Yeah, we still don't know why they want to work with us. <laughs> I think all of that was driven by Sanat by just talking to each one of them, and I, I, you know, I can very clearly remember every single time we added a person to the board, and Sanat will come jumping to me saying, "Hey, you know what? This person." It's an expert in fly models or whatever that is. And he's like, we got this person on our board. And the next thing he would tell me is go add his photo and his information on our website right now. So we don't call it a board. I hate the word board. I really hate the word board. Um, To me, board is, uh, is a bunch of people sitting in a conference room, eating, eating biscuits and drinking tea. I don't know why I have this impression, Um, but that's how I have it. Um, It's a team. Uh, team is where people are actively working and running around and, and, and focusing on one goal. Um, so it's, it's a team. It's all about focus. Uh, we have about 11 people on our science team right now. Um, we have the science team covering different aspects of the science that are necessary to, uh, to get to the next level. Um, so the, currently, when you, when you start with a new rare disease, it's a blank slate. Nobody knows what's happening here. Um, the first thing you need is obviously patience. So the moment you have patience, the next thing you need is is what are called models. Models are surrogates for patients. So you cannot, because you cannot give a, a drug to a human tested, you don't want to sacrifice a human. Um, you can sacrifice a cell. You can just take the, the, the patient's cell samples and uh, give the drugs to the cell and see what, how it behaves. You can do the same thing on different model animals there are worms, fish, fly, mouse, um, and some people all even use rats. And you, you can even go up the, the chain and they use like dogs, sheep, chimpanzees, non-human primates. Um, so these are models. Uh, and it took us a long time to figure out why we need these models and what the value of these models are. Uh, but, but now that we figured that out, we have uh, a good coverage of different people working on different disease models. Um, and we have a bunch of people focusing on different parts of the um, biology stack. And I, call, I keep calling the biology stack because I come from a computer science background. To me, a biology stack is if a human has to function, everything that you need at different layers is a part of the stack. So the, the, most, the bottom most layer are, are atoms and then the molecules and then how they interact. So that's the biochemical layer. Uh, and, and the layer above that is is a collection of atoms and molecules and, and what's called a cellular layer. Uh, and then a layer above that is is tissues, organs, and systems, and then the, the body itself. So that, that's, that's the stack. And you can actually go outside the body and, and into the environment in the stack as well. But in this case, it's a genetic disease, so environment plays less role there. So we have different people for different parts of the biology stack. Um, and, and so that all those together uh, is what accounts to 11 people. I have no clue where he learned all this from. I have no clue. In our first interview, you said you didn't even know what a gene was. And now you're talking about it in terms of the, you know, the analog of a stack describing life. Um, that's really cool. And you've applied it to how your scientific team together. The, the other thing that we talked about early on in this, this series was the lack of community that when you first started this, it was lonely. 
and you didn't know who was out there. How has that community side of this uh, changed in the past six months or so? So we started connecting with um, different rare disease advocates um, via conferences like Global Genes and, and NARD and, and stuff like that. Um, and somewhere along, um, someone started a WhatsApp group with a bunch of the bunch of us, and that evolved now into a Slack group called Rare Disease Crusaders that has about 20, 25 people in there, all kind of doing the same things. So that group is the community now. Um, and you could go in there and ask questions about, hey, what do you think about mouse models? And how much do you think you should pay for mouse modeling of this this size and shape and, and stuff like that? Or, you know, how do you, how what, what is a sponsored research agreement? What do we, should you be careful about? And things like that. And so that community is now, I think, ready because I can, I can jump into the community and like get started right away. There's so much resources that uh, you can leverage uh, so much experience. Um, you know, there are, there's always a folklore of, you know, oh yeah, we tried the mouse models, but the mice never made it alive. Or we collected all the cell models in a research lab, but for some reason the, the building lost power and we lost all the cells. Like there's all these like, you know, anecdotes and folklores that, you know, I've heard from individual people. Uh, now with the Slack group, when we go ask questions, you know, some of these come out or, or people draw from some of these experiences and say, here's how you should do these things and, and watch out for A, B, and C when you do, uh, when you do an activity. So it, it becomes sort of the, uh, the community that I've been asking for. So has anything surprised you about that community? It's the variance in the type of activities that people do. That surprised me a lot. So all of us have a different you know, um, perspective uh, and a strategy on how to approach and solve this disease. And at, at some levels, it all looks the same. But when you start digging into details, everybody, uh, someone is more deeper in science, someone is less, um, less deeper in, in fundraising or whatever, right? Even further down, even in the science aspects, even in how they put their teams together, how they approach things, there is a lot of variance in how people do it. I don't, we don't know which um, aspect of it would raise, would, 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 ha- would be successful to give to a treatment, but it's good to get that variety. I think that's, that's the most surprising part. We can le- learn a lot from different people there. I think that there's the power of it too, the diversity of perspective and the people who as you say, are, are focused on fundraising or awareness as opposed to science. But you've gone in and dug in the science. You can give them something. They can give something back to you. And hopefully a community like this with all that diversity creates a critical mass where you guys can make an impact on all these different conditions that, that you're talking about because your situations are different biologically, but your life situations are the same. And you're going to come in with different perspectives and you become a, you know, a, a super team there of, of, of people just bringing in those different perspectives and folding them in on each other and, and building off of each other. I, I, I think there's, there's the, um, the, the rare disease community aspect of it, which is like trying to solve and try find a treatment for the rare disease. There is the other community aspect of it, which is in Facebook. That's what I was about to say. I'm starting to realize how differently Sanat and I think about, you know, 
things for every question that you ask he has a very different than what's coming in my mind so i think there's there's different. you know different perspectives but within our you know the two of us itself when yeah. when when the word community when i hear the word community uh, the facebook uh, you know people that support me comes to my mind they they are the ones who always follow our journey make sure you know ragav surgery went well Yeah, if our fundraising went well and things like that, so that they are they are the people who support me. And, and, uh, and there's also the hypertonia community that you're part of, right? Special, special needs, needs parents, and that's just a place where I can go talk about the struggles that we go through. Talk about just you know the million uh, calendar appointments that we have for Ragav on our calendars every week, right? Doctors' appointment, therapies, and unexpected hospital visits. So that's that's community to me. Yeah, and and both these communities together are are integral for for raising Raghav here. Um, this is like you know, there's one aspect of it where it's just finding treatments, and there's as the other aspect of it which is every day. Um, like Ramya would go into this community and ask, you know, how do I find wh- 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 who's the best physical therapist in Seattle? And uh, someone would come up with recommendations, and one of the recommendations is what. we actually did that and and one of our therapists is is from was recommended by the community there or we ask who is the best doctor for for this in seattle and the questions are more nuanced than that That's right true. just not just who is the physical therapist we talk about ragav's condition talk about what motivates him and asks for a person who can who can help him and it's only people in that community they they're the only people who can understand that question You can continue to follow Ragav's story next time on Raising Rare. Raising Rare is produced by Salem Oaks, empowering patients and caregivers to shape the future of medicine. CureGPX4.org is dedicated to finding a treatment and cure for SSMD. You can donate to Cure GPX4 on the Raising Rare podcast page or at curegpx4.org.